Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Keldu and Swice. We are here to help engage your mind and cultivate your spirit, specifically to navigate the roads of suffering and to do that productively with the evidence we have, amazing evidence we have in Christ. I have a very special guest today, one of my heroes, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Gary Habermas is a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He's one of the foremost scholars in the world on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who's written a plethora of information about it, as one of the main sources that many people go to, to find the historical accuracy of the Gospels and the questions behind those. He's debated Anthony Flew, one of my atheistic anti-heroes in the past. Um, Anthony Flew was one of his friends and um, had, uh, through a series of debates, had interesting conversion experience, but that's a whole different discussion. Anyway, there's a lot, he's written a lot of books and a lot of work, and, and as well as contributed to the volume uh, we've done on uh, debating Christian theism. Dr. Gary Habermas, Welcome. I am glad to be with you. Your topic's uh, wonderful, so all set. Wonderful. Thank, thank you again. Uh, Dr. Habermas, let me get started here with um, one of your books, one of my favorites in the past was The Thomas Factor, yes. Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God. Can you, let's begin this with, tell us your own experience of doubt and how um, that draw you to, um, drew you to start writing about it and engaging people about it. What, what is it that uh, sparked that in you? Sure. Um, well, for me, uh, it became a very personal thing. When, when I am uh, asked how I got on the topic of interest of resurrection or near-death experiences, I would imagine people are saying something like, you know, no doubt you were studying these areas to help Christians work through doubt. And, I would, and my response to that is, no not really. I wish I were that altruistic, but I'm not. And I did those areas to work through doubts myself. So I went, I went through a period of doubt for about, oh, let's say at least 10 straight years. Hmm. And then on and off for another 15 years after that. So I was, in, I was in and out of doubt for, oh, at least 20 years. That's amazing. Was this while you were still a New Testament scholar and studying the material? Or was this before? Well, yeah, actually, I uh, told my mother after I finished my PhD, she called me to see how I was doing with my doubts and things. And I told her I wouldn't be surprised if I had, that if I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to that I might become a Buddhist in a, in a few months' time. Really? So, yeah, it, 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 let's put it this way. It's not one of those testimonies that people sometimes tell you right. where they say, I used to be an evangelical and then became an atheist, or I used to be an atheist and became an evangelical, and you say, when? And they, oh, I was 12 years old. It wasn't one of those. I was, I was an adult with my grad studies mm -hmm. and still wondering what in the world was true. Well, well, thank you for being open and uh, transparent about that. So you wrote the book, The Thomas Factor, about it. And for those who don't know, Thomas was the main disciple who had uh, doubted the claims of Christ. Can you expand on that and the, the topic for the book? Yeah. Um, on the topic for the book, okay, when I started going back to my doubts, yes, most of my doubts at the beginning were factual doubt. 
And when the factual doubts weren't answered, I found that I was moving to a different realm a little bit, and the doubts were more than just, is this true or false? They became very painful. And then I thought, well, wow, if they're painful, it looks like I've reached a new level, and they're somewhat emotional. Hmm. And then, then my students started coming to me, and they started telling me about their doubts. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have to change a lot of my ideas on doubt. So to make a long story short, I concluded in, in three different books on doubt and in a bunch of articles. Right. Um, I concluded that doubt is, is uh, the headier kind is what I would call um, factual or philosophical doubt. Then, then it often, if people don't get answers, it often morphs to emotional doubt. And then if people don't get answers, it sometimes morphs to a kind of uh, the person kind of saying to God, you stay in your half of the universe, I'll stay in my half of the universe. I really don't give a rip anymore. Hmm. And I call, I call that kind of volitional. Uh, but the, the middle category of emotional doubt is by far the most common, yeah. by far the most painful, and that's the type that that particular book, The Thomas Factor, almost the entire book is about a, the emotional kind of doubt. Okay. And that is the most common one. I suppose the skeptics or the cynics can lead to the third area there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very, very common. And I think that's one of the reasons. Well, I'll say it this way. A clinical psychologist friend of mine, Gary, Hab- Gary Habermas, right? A clinical psychologist <laughs> friend of mine, Gary Sibsey, uh, is a Ph.D. and, and uh, did our ran our Ph.D. counseling program for a while. And Gary decided to take my doubt theory and test it empirically um, by giving people a battery of tests and to see how their emotions were loading onto what kind of doubt they had. Mm. And the last stage, volitional, that I described, the most common emotional predisposal toward it is anger. Anger. And that's very interesting because when we talk to a lot of atheists uh, and we say, why are you guys so angry? Hmm. You know, you know, you might even somebody might even shout at you and say, I'm not angry when they obviously are. So that would that would be an argument that a lot of the people who were evangelicals and then became unbelievers, mm-hmm. or at least their own testimony to that effect, is that something happened in their life, or maybe more than one happening, that made them very angry. So that's the volitional type. I know that Lewis uh, said that after he lost his mother, his um, he became an atheist, but it led him to later on in his life a more cynical thing not just not believing that god existed but believing something worse that god was malevolent and somehow out yes. to get him and get us right yeah i remember that little phrase because he was like 8 or 9 years old or something and yes and then a little bit later and, and at first you know you feel really sorry for him and he said he was convinced that god oh. could even raise her from the dead mm. but then she didn't and, uh, of course, by the time he's a teenager, you get the idea he's at least late teens. He's already uh, thinking God uh, probably doesn't exist. So, yeah, that, that was that was pretty significant. And that, in his, his life, then, 
that would have a lot to do with the death of his mom. You're right. That's a good uh, correlation. Now, in your book, you talk about 12 myths about doubt. Uh, what yep. do you think the, the top two maybe would be or the top um, uh, factor there that, uh, that myths that people embrace about um, that? One of the things I'm thinking about, um, Gary, is the concept that doubt is the opposite of faith. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That would be one of them. I was going to ask you, my first question is going to be uh, misbeliefs from what viewpoint? D- uh-huh. Misbeliefs from a believer would be different than misbeliefs from an unbeliever. But uh, yes. yeah, I would think that either side could say doubt and and uh, faith are opposites. And I think my general answer to that is there are about a half dozen Greek words in the New Testament, mm-hmm. or for that matter, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, but a half dozen words that we could translate doubt. And a couple of them, they do get pretty close to the idea of unbelief. But I think for the most part, doubt, the words for doubt, actually mean or indicate in the Greek what I could perhaps describe as a halfway house between doubt and belief. Now, I, I remember the fellow that came up to Jesus in the Gospels, and of course, his not he's not doubting, but what he says is pretty instructive. When he's, he's asked for a healing mm-hmm. from Jesus, yes. and what he says is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that could be very common. People who believe, but say there's a, some percentage of unbelief, some significant percentage of unbelief there. Um, in fact, Oz Guinness's excellent book on doubt, it's gone by several titles over the years and more than, uh, more than one publisher. The original title for his book on doubt was called In Two Minds. Mm. And, and that's because the prominent Greek term translated or thought of in terms of doubt means to, you know, both and, to go back and forth on something. So I don't think doubt is unbelief at all. I mean, it can shade toward that. It can also shade toward strong belief. But it often means that halfway place in between the two. The passage you mentioned, by the way, for our listeners, was Mark 9.24. So picking back up, we were asking about intellectual doubt, and you were talking about the difference in your book and in your work between intellectual doubt and emotional doubt and how sometimes it leads to a type of cynicism of some sort. You right. write in there that no amount of factual evidence can bring someone peace. What do you tell someone who's in emotional doubt? Emotional, if they're an emotional doubter. Right. Um, yeah. So let's assume somebody is, okay, we'll talk about the, the intellectual parts. Um, so if somebody's in intellectual doubt where they're holding their breath, they come across a, a contradiction, they come across a problem, um, a lack of, quote, evidence in their life, what are some steps that could take to alleviate the intellectual doubt? And then we'll step into the emotional doubt. Okay. On intellectual doubt, um, there's a couple things I would say. One is, obviously, answer the questions you have. Um <laughs> But another one is a warning. Oftentimes people with, um, with factual or philosophical doubt, or as you say, intellectual doubt, they get hung up on periphery items. They get hung up on the age of the earth, uh, what's going to happen in the end times, making a choice between sovereignty and free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I lose my faith? 
Uh, they get hung up on those things because they are very important questions for them. But I want to tell them, why do you think that you know some of our publishing houses have published over 50, 5-0, over 50, 3, 4, and 5 views books? <laughs> and I think that's because we all realize, those of us who are Christians, we realize that maybe even the vast number of our theological and historical beliefs, they can be accounted for by different kinds of Christians in more than one manner. So we allow that. Well, maybe that's a hint that you shouldn't be spending all your time answering periphery questions. Um, So those would be some hints. But the thing I would say to the factual doubter that's most crucial is this. If you are... If you believe what the New Testament defines as the gospel, now, I, I'm talking about the specific message. When Paul, for example, says over and over again, you are a believer because you believe the message of the gospel we gave when we came to you. The times Paul defines the gospel, not just Paul, in in the sermon summaries in the book of Acts, the the deity of Christ, his atoning death, bodily resurrection, they're always there in the text. I mean, they're, they're, they're right there at hand. So deity, death, resurrection. I would say to the factual doubter, get those three down. Get deity, death, resurrection, and then what faith is. Because faith is, is our response. The facts are God's facts, deity, death, resurrection. But faith in the uh, Greek, the words pistuo, pistis, so on, mm-hmm. the words mean to commit. I think the best um, English words for what happens when the person believes Christ are the two little words that we all know from uh, marriages, the words I do. <laughs> and yeah. when you say I do, that commits you to a, that commits you to a lifetime of being sold out to somebody else and eventually to a bunch of somebody else's if you have children. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of commitment, because when you say to a Christian, all you got to do is believe, they get the wrong idea. They go, oh, well, I already do that. Sort of like George Washington was the first president of the United States. Right. So if we study those four topics, three of them on God's side, deity, death, resurrection, one on our side, what belief means, I think the factual doubter who concentrates on those should have the kernel of Christianity, and they can then spend the rest of their time spending, you know, reading whatever three, four, and five used books they want to, and formulating their views and other things. So I would tell the factual doubter stay on the major on the major, and do the deed, death, resurrection, and what kind of a commitment are you willing to say? I do to Jesus. Uh, I think that would be the key for factual doubt. Okay, so those are the big three, deity, death, resurrection. And I'll provide in the show notes some significant work by Christians throughout the, the last two centuries that uh, substantiate the evidence for that. The um, the other part you talked about, which is the um, belief, understanding belief, one of the main conjectures out there, and <laughs> sophomoric views, uh, Gary, that really troubles me. Uh, I don't know why it keeps bothering me, but it's just so common. That faith is the absence of belief, or like Mark Twain would say, Believing what you know ain't so. 
so that's what faith is. Uh, can you contrast that with the biblical notion of uh, what faith actually is? Um, specifically yeah, referring yeah, to uh, Hebrews. Because sure. you talked about the Greek word, pistis. Right. Over and over again, <clears throat> the New Testament talks about the Christian's hope, the believer's hope. In English, hope could be taken as um, who's going to win the Super Bowl? Well, I hope mm-hmm. it's so-and-so. Uh-huh. And hope there means it's kind of an iffy use. It can be a real iffy word in English. But in the New Testament, hope, the, the strongest sense of hope in a, you know, in a, in a, in a uh, application to salvation and to the Christian, yes. hope is something that's based on a sound foundation. So I think it's very... Uh, you know, important that when you say, I believe in Jesus, that's not a synonym for, I believe in the tooth fairy or something like that. <laughs> right. In the New Testament, for example, in First Peter 1, Peter says, we have a hope from God based on, he says, based on the resurrection of Jesus. Well, wow. and then he says, the result is that you have eternal life in heaven and nobody can take it from you. And he uses four words to indicate that it can't be taken, stolen, you know. In fact, he says it's guarded mm. in heaven. Well, if that's if hope is such that it can be based on the resurrection and nobody can take it from you, that kind of hope is a very strong word indeed. So I would think that's closer to what the New Testament means than any kind of, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl. So a form of trust, would you say, as well? Trust is fair. Yeah. Trust okay. is fair, and that is a synonym for pistuo. The only problem is uh, trust, what we do with trust in English mm-hmm. is, isn't as bad as what we do with believe. Mm. You know, oftentimes we say to our husband or wife, we say, I love you. And then we say an hour later, I love strawberry ice cream, <laughs> or yeah. I believe I believe in you. Uh-huh. And later we say, uh, I believe so and so is the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Those are the words that love and believe used in a strong and a weak sense. Um, I think trust is better, but trust can be kind of weak too. I can say, you know, what's wrong? Do you not trust my driving? Well. <laughs> Yeah, I trust your driving, but what I mean is I'm kind of scared to go with you anywhere. Right. Uh, so we have to be careful on how it's used, but trust actually, if you want to look it up in a lexicon, yes. uh, trust is a synonym for the New Testament word belief. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see the philosopher coming out of you uh, defining the words. <laughs> yeah, I try to be very careful. You well, mean the uh, analytic the analytic emphasis, right. huh? Uh, so we have somebody who's getting in the elevator who trusts that there's an elevator there, but believe or believing in an elevator as opposed to believing that there's an elevator. Believing in one is actually getting right. in it. Right. Is right. The yeah, the old, the old example that's used, I think it's an actual case mm-hmm. from around the turn of the last century. Yeah that you believe this guy, this expert tightrope walker, because you just saw him do it, mm-hmm. you believe he can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, but you sure are not going to get on his back. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that's two senses of belief, too. So to me, I would say pistuo and pistis um, are very strong words for, it. for commitment, mm. and trust is a very strong word for commitment. 
but hope is a very strong uh, has a very strong basis in the foundation. Okay, and the overlap, of course. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, Hebrews eleven one. It says, "Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence." Of things not seen, it's not a, a contrast to evidence. It's a, more of um like two wings on a plane that work together to bring about. Yeah, yeah. That's right. helpful. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's go to the um the doubts. Uh, is I asked you, is doubt the opposite of faith? You said no, it's unbelief. What does yeah, that mean? What is it that angers God? It's not our doubts that anger God because He welcomes that. It seems. Um, come to me, He says. Those of you who are uh, broken and uh, broken hearted, but. Those who are unbelieving, what does that even mean? You know what? Uh, if you look at the Greek words, pistuo, pistis, is belief. In the Greek, lack of belief, like theism and atheism, right. belief and lack of belief would be to put an A in front of the word faith. Mm. And just like atheism means no theism, an A in front of belief means unbelief. So that's the opposite of faith. Faith okay. and unbelief. Faith or belief and unbelief are opposites, but faith and doubt can both coexist. In fact, a great example in Scripture is when John the Baptist is thrown in prison and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus because he can't go himself. Right. And he's on his deathbed. I mean, he may not know that. He might be putting two and two together, but he may know he's in a lot of hot water. And he sends his disciples to Jesus, and they ask a twofold question that's very sobering. Mm. Are you the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? How and you're thinking, okay, I, can, I guess I can see John saying, are you the Messiah? He's anxious. He's in a jail cell. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. But are are you know, should we look for someone else? Uh, Lord, uh, are you the Messiah? Because if you're not, there's this guy down the street and his name's Buddha. Now, now, don't get mad at me. I'm just wondering. Um, now, now, the crazy thing is that John would ask that twofold question. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, when Jesus says to him, answers with evidence, by the way, go tell John what you see, mm -hmm. the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, and don't be offended because of me. Mm. But what's incredible is when his, two dis when his disciples walk away, that is when Jesus gave that fantastic compliment that we all know about John the Baptist, that he was the most righteous man ever born of a woman. Wow. In other, in other words, doubting John, because they hadn't gotten back to John yet, doubting John is called the most righteous man ever born. That's amazing. Let me let me wrap this back up to a, a point here. I'm, I've heard this made many times. I've made it myself. If you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But Job doubted. Um, uh, Moses doubted. Isaiah doubted. But even the Lord Jesus, would you say that he doubted when he called off, when he quoted the Psalms? My God, my God. Why have yeah, you know what? Um, that's tough. Now, since I think that, take John the Baptist, since I think that not all doubt is sin, right? Just like, just like you know, the New Testament says, "Be angry and sin not." Not all emotions are sin. Mm -hmm. 
I would be a little slow to see Jesus doubted, but I wouldn't object to somebody saying that. Um, but I will say this, that, yeah, that, that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I guess this would be the definition of doubt. Mm. But I think Jesus definitely had some questions. Mm. And and another one would be, now it's, it's only in one verse, right. and there's a variant reading. So this one is real tough. Yeah. But in the book of Luke alone, when he's in the garden, he sweats drops of blood. Now, like I said, there's a variant reading there, and it's only in Luke. Okay. But doubting, sweating blood is a known medical condition. But... It is caused virtually always, as far as I understand, by strong anxiety. Hmm. So now you would say, whoa, was Jesus anxious? Mm-hmm. And I think there's, I think you'd have to say, to be honest, that Jesus was suffering from something we would recognize as anxiety. Yes. And on the doubt question, he was asked, he was asking questions. So I just think that those two things, especially given what he was going through, um, that they're definitely not simple. They're definitely not wrong. But you know what? What would you say? You know, in the early church, sure, you were a heretic if you didn't believe Jesus was deity. But in the early church, you were a heretic if you didn't believe he was a fully human. And to be fully human, I would think those questions would have to come into your mind. <laughs> so. That's probably where I would leave it, somewhere right in there. Interesting. Well, interesting, a contrast here with Psalm 22. Um, in, in that psalm where David is crying out and, and the Lord Jesus quotes, um, my God, my God, he has an intimate connection there. It's not an unbelief. And then he asks, why? Why have you forsaken me? If that's what's happening here, you still have that connection. It's not unbelief. It's still an intimate connection with your father. And you can still ask questions as an encouragement to all of us today to continue to ask. Because the answers may surprise us, if not the one who... Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I think that's penetrating. I think yeah. that's good. All right, let's go to... Um, you mentioned your book about um, 1 Kings 19. Uh, so Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel, who threatens to kill him. Right. And he goes into a, a form of uh, anxiety or depression in that one sense. I don't know how deep it was. But suddenly an angel shows up, and the word in Hebrew is naga, which is touch. I was looking this up. It's kind of almost like a violent touch. Maybe pushed him or slapped him. I don't know what it was. But tells him, get up and eat. Uh, yep. uh, and he, he actually, the passage talks about sleep in there, too, in that passage. Right. Can you talk about the importance right. of that in, in our doubts, uh, those, those physical, biological chemistry that comes in that we ignore? Because we're not just spiritual beings, are we? No, and that, that, that's a very important text you're bringing. When if, if, it works both ways. If you're trying to get away from anxiety and you don't want a religious, if you say, well, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to respond with faith or praising God. What else can I do to get rid of anxiety? Well, your doctor might say, go read a bike, uh, go, I mean, go read a book, <laughs> go ride a bike, uh-huh. go swim, call your friend on the phone and talk to him. And all those things can break um, the, the anxiety. And, but the other way is also true. Eat and get some more sleep. Uh, I, I <laughs> what a novel idea, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I talked to a guy one time. I've talked to hundreds of doubters. I've had, well, I've had hundreds of conversations with doubters. And uh. one guy who later became a professional counselor, which is interesting, like physician, heal yourself. Um, he was really churned up by, by doubts. 
And one day he went to bed, like let's just say it was nighttime on a Tuesday, yeah. and he woke up on Thursday morning. <laughs> he woke up like a day and a half later. Uh, I, I, I take it that there's a, a some kind of connection there between anxiety and and if you need a lot of if you're sleep deprived. Yeah, interesting, so, fascinating connection. I was um, going through uh, Jordan Peterson, who's making his rounds around the world as an intellectual uh, debater on the topics in conservative and liberal circles. He's dealt with many people who've gone through uh, suicidal tendencies, and he says one of his most important questions he asks, one of the first questions is. How much sleep have you gotten lately? Yep. <laughs> yep. That's important. And another one would be, are you taking your medicine? Yeah, that's a big one. When people, are, when people are diagnosed and get put on certain drugs, they will. it's a very well-known fact that they will say, uh, as a matter of fact, I quit taking my medicine. Oh, so you're self-medicating. Uh, well, I think I, I think I'm much better. And and in the background, you're looking at their friends who he can't see them, but you're looking at their faces and they're shaking their heads. No, no, he's not getting better. Wow. So yeah, are you taking your medicine? Are you getting your sleep? Are you eating a balanced meal? Are you getting plenty of protein? Are you this that? Yeah, those are very important things. God made your body as much as He made your soul. Don't ignore either one. They're both yes, important. Yes, that's a great point. All right. So the next point here I'm getting at here is I was going to talk about God and hell, but the interest of time. Let me go to one. Uh, in your book um, on near-death experiences beyond death, um, yeah. which written like, with J.P. Moreland, let me touch on that a little bit. Uh, a couple of years ago, let's check about eight years ago, seven years ago, um, a book came out called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And actually, subsequently, a number of them came back about that. Yep. But Alex McCarley, or McHarley, uh, I pronounced his name correctly, admitted uh, years later that he lied. He made up the whole thing. Right. <laughs> that he was on a coma and came back. Many people go through these experiences. In your book on near-death experiences or, OB or out-of-body experiences, if you were to summarize it all, are these good evidences that we can use to substantiate our faith that we are more than just a body? That there is something yeah, else? Some of them are... I mean, knockout evidences. There are over 300 evidenced near-death experiences right now. Over 300. 300. Okay, doctor. I, I just I just de- debated a guy. It was a debate in writing. It was a written debate. Mm. In, um, you know, a prestigious book, the, um, the Blackwell uh, Handbook of Mind-Body Dualism. Huh, okay. And, and I did the, um, I, I did a, de- a, 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 myself and another guy, we debated the issue of whether near-death experiences give any evidence for mind-body dualism. Okay. And be that as it may, we weren't arguing about the dualistic end of it, but we were arguing about whether what you ask, whether there's any good evidence. And some of these, there are about, that I know of, 30 to 40 of the heavily evidenced 300 cases. There are 30 to 40 of them where either... The person has measurably, I mean, as far as the machines tell us, the person has no heart or brain activity, or the person has is under a general anesthetic. Now, there are a lot of cases where people remember something that was said when they were, quote, unquote, out. But that might have been out, like you're out in a dentist chair, you know, where it's not very deep. Right. Or for medical procedures, there's many of them today 
where they're done with a light anesthesia. But I understand, I don't know this myself, but I understand that in a general anesthesia, you don't report things. Mm. And in about 30 to 40 of these cases, I think the more evidential ones are the ones where the person has a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, that kind of cardiac arrest. And studies show that in about 15 seconds after your heart stops beating, when you have a cardiac arrest or ventricular fibrillation, 15 seconds later, your brain waves go flat. Mm. Now, so if you're reporting an experience from three minutes after a, a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, you're reporting an event with no measurable heart or brain activity. And there are dozens of these. And mm. some of them, some of these are incredibly evidential. Mm. I mean, uh, in one case, uh, a man was having surgery and he had a cardiac arrest in this manner and he did not, uh, heartbeat was not restored for 30 minutes. And oftentimes when people have near-death experiences, they look in, they see, they, they go to where their best friends and family are located. It might be, you know, five floors below them in a waiting room where they're being operated on. It could be that. And in this one case, this, this fellow had a cardiac arrest and was out for 30 minutes. He looked in, quote-unquote, on his home in Florida. The only problem is his home in Florida was 1,200 miles away from where his body was located. Okay. Hit, you know, on the on the um, during the surgery with no no measurable flat, you know, no measurable heart or brain. Mm -hmm. And he looked in, and he gave several highly specific details about what was going on with the house sitter that he had sitting in the song. The guy wasn't doing anything like it wasn't like having a big you know, huge party and bringing mm -hmm. in underage people and giving them alcohol. It was nothing like that. But there were several highly detailed things. And when the man came to, he told his wife and took notes on what he saw in the house. And later they had him all verified. Hmm. But he was 1,250 miles away with no measurable heart or brain. Hmm. That's just one of 30 to 40 of those cases. So I would say... Yeah, some of these with, with flat heart and brain are very influential. There are other ones that are a long way away, as in miles, where oh, the perception I, is, okay. is uh, you know, later evidenced. I like to put some in the show notes for people who are skeptical, specifically in the peer-reviewed research on near-death experiences as, quote, unexplained events, unquote, of whatever that is. Um, do you have an opinion on um, Proof of Heaven, the Neurosurgeon's Journey in the Afterlife by uh, Eben Alexander? Do I have a Do I have an opinion on it? Have you read that book, the the neurosurgeon who? Uh, you know. I I can see the book twelve feet away from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> okay, it's in my library. However, yeah. however, um, that book. See, I, I will only judge. I only study near death experiences when there's evidence, and. There's not a lot of it in that book. It's more of a first-person, really interesting story where this person believed he was flat brain. Right. He was a surgeon. He was a brain surgeon. And and he, and it's very touching, grabbing um, story of, 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 you know, this person and his family. Um, but I, I wouldn't use it 
because I only use evidential cases. So I, I okay. use cases where, I mean, I'll just make something up. This is not a real case. I use a case where a person's in an operating room, there are no windows, the person's up above their body, they have a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, three minutes later there's no measurable heart or brain, and they watch a car accident out in the hospital parking lot. Hmm. And let's say we can get a police report, so we know when the accident occurred, and we know when he went under and when he had his cardiac arrest, and, and this accident happened right in the middle of the, let's say, 30 minutes that this person was out. Okay. Um, but he can describe the colors of the car, who went through the stop sign, mm-hmm. where on the car. He hit the one car, the driver's side door, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. But he was measurably a goner at that time. Mm. Uh, those are the kind of cases I look to. So I'm not going to put down the Alexander book. I'm just saying it's a really, really good read. Mm. But I'm looking for heavily evidenced cases in order to make a philosophical case, A, against um, materialism or physicalism, um, a variety of naturalism, or to make a case for personal consciousness beyond the apparent death of the brain and body. That's the cases I would go after, so I'd look for some pretty heavy evidence. I'll be looking in the show notes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for some specific documented cases uh, that Dr. Habermas was referring to, and we'll connect to that later. Hopefully, I I can get that information from you later, Dr. Habermas. I'll be in the email okay. and the link, right. especially that debate that you said you had a written debate. Yep. Uh, all right, let's conclude with one final question. Um, you have written and engaged on the ancient material for the death of and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, more than 99% of the people on the world, and most scholars as well. So let's bring this home. How does the death of a man 2,000 plus years ago have anything to do with my life today and my journey with the, the, the death of my marriage or death of my child or death of my um, dreams today. How does that give me or give us hope? How does it give you hope? Well, that, I mean, that's a great question. You worded it in a way that's, that's highly interactive and that's good. But, I mean, there are all kinds of events in the ancient world which occurred, or even if you want to talk about, you know, 200 and. 40 years ago with the birth of the American nation, there's all kinds of things about who was president, who won this war, who won the Civil War, who won the Revolutionary War, where did that leave us? There's all kinds of things from history where if these things can be verified and we knew who won this war and this war, we can see why there's the United States today or why there's another another country or the Hundred Years' War over in Europe or or all those sorts of questions. They're all the way through history. Yes. There are many ancient events that affect us today. And I would think that if Jesus is the Son of God, and if we have evidence for that, and I think we have a lot, I could talk for a whole show about that alone, uh-huh. or an evidence that he died at the cross. I'm, I'm writing a magnum opus. I'm on a page of approximately 4,500 mm. on the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And I've got over 100, pa- 100 pages of reasons to believe that Jesus really died on the cross. Wow. The rest of the book, thousands of pages, is how do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? So if those things happened, and he claimed to be the Son of God, and he claimed, as he did, that what you do with him determines where you spend eternity, mm-hmm. that there's a good example where the facts of his life affect what I'm doing with him today. So then, if let's assume all these are true. How does this apply to somebody now struggling? 
How does it apply to what? Somebody struggling right now. Somebody who's suffering? Suffering and struggling. Those, let's assume all the things that you say are true. He is the, the, the incarnate Son of God, risen from the dead through a miracle of God the Father. Sure. How does that apply well, to me now? That's great. Let's, let's, let's give an example. Paul, in First Thessalonians, says, he says, we suffer, we grieve when someone dies. We grieve, but not as those without hope. If you think about that, if we're standing at a graveside and the person who died or the person telling the story ourselves, if we know that losing a loved one, my wife died over 20 years ago of stomach cancer. And we know that when you say goodbye to somebody, you would like to say hello to them again and be there with them for eternity. So, when you're at that graveside, I think Paul's verse, we grieve, but not as those without hope. You know, I really want to know if there's hope for an afterlife or not, because I will grieve differently. And and let me give an example. When my mom, when my, well, when my wife died, let's say, and my four children were talking about their mom, mm-hmm. two of them came up after the funeral, right after, mm-hmm and said, I lost my best friend. Hmm. Now, when she was dying, I said to my children, grieve for yourselves. Be sorrowful for yourself because you won't see her in this life. But don't grieve for mom because if if Scripture is true, when Paul says to depart and be with Christ is far better than living here, it seems like, from Second Corinthians 12 and from other things, it seems like Paul had a near-death experience, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. But I, so I told my kids, grieve for yourself, but don't grieve for mom. And I deeply believe this, and I've asked near-death uh, you know, people who come back. I've said, don't grieve for your mom, because I deeply believe that my wife would not have come back even if she had a chance. Hmm. And most most of the people that have near-death experiences, I remember a, a young mother with, with children, and she had even seen her child, her latest child, and I asked her, did you want to come back? You haven't even seen your child yet. Did you want to come back? And she said, I did not. And I said, she said it like she was guilty. Wow. And I said, what about your children? Uh-huh. And she said, my husband will take care of them, but I don't want to come back. Huh. So, to me, all the difference in the world is this. How do we grieve? Do we grieve with hope or without hope? I will grieve differently if I will never see my wife again now or ever, or if I think I will see my wife again forever in eternity. That's a world of difference. So I think things that happen in the history in the past can have a huge bearing on our emotional states in the present. That's amazing. Yes. I remember something Frederick Nietzsche said, um, anyone who has a, a why can get through any what. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, let's conclude this, uh, Dr. Abramas. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it and all the work you're doing for the kingdom, for uh, all of us. It's been incredibly helpful and inspiring. Please well, tell Luna, I, it, It's been great. I've enjoyed this time with you, and I hope it's... I think, I think your questions are going in a great direction. These things aren't just a matter of true or false. They're no. a difference of existential importance in the present. So I appreciate your questions going in that area. Thank you, sir. May God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care.